Let me read to you from the beginning of Psalm 145, because there is a purpose for this hearing test. Listen. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Hear this. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. In Luke chapter 6, there is a few men or a few disciples, possible disciples that Jesus is talking to. And to one of them, Jesus says, follow me. And he says, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says directly to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Shocking. Shocking. Can I just tell you this? If you are a person that has the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you are united with Christ. You as an individual and we as a body, we are proclaimers of the kingdom of God. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures throughout all generations and he is gracious and merciful. So this kingdom that is going forth is a gracious merciful kingdom, a kingdom that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Can I introduce you to the king this morning? Because the king is going to speak to us through his word. That is not me. I'm just like the guy that says, can I go bury my father? And he says, no, you go ahead and proclaim the kingdom. Maybe my words are just going to fall off the edge of the pulpit. That's fine. But I pray that the king speaks to us this morning. It is he who is eternal. His kingdom is everlasting. How could it be everlasting? Because he is the one who died and has risen. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and he calls all people to turn from their crooked ways, their sin, and to trust him. His kingdom is forever because he is forever. It is a kingdom of resurrection. With that in mind, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 this morning. I went ahead and gave you the kingdom flurry at the beginning from Psalm 145 because this is a kingdom passage that has the gospel of the kingdom of God plugged right into the middle of it. So let me ask you a question to kind of transition from God's kingdom into considering your own kingdom. How wealthy are you? <clears throat> How wealthy are you? I didn't ask, are you wealthy? That's a different question. To ask that question would be to deny that within the history of the world, all of us, compared to most of the people that have inhabited this planet, are in the upper crust. To which you may say, that's an unfair indicator. Wealth is relative to where I live, who I live around, the cost of rent, cost of living, inflation, hello. Okay, if everything is relative then, let me ask you this. What is the measure that you use to measure your treasure? That you have a secure retirement? $1,000 put away as your emergency fund. You'll graduate debt-free. 
Or maybe that you could pick up a latte on the way to church without like feeling you couldn't pay the rent next month. Maybe you feel wealthy because you could pay your bills. Or you feel wealthy now when before you felt not wealthy. Or maybe you're on the flip side of those things. You're saying, I'm not wealthy because I don't have an emergency fund or I can't pay my bills or I have lots of debt. Jesus says some pretty radical things about wealth. And sometimes they're swept aside as kind of metaphorical. If you read the Gospel of Luke, they're definitely not metaphorical. Do they point to greater realities of riches and poverty? Absolutely. But salvation and discipleship are on the street level. They are where we have to consider lives, decisions, choices, and yes, even bank accounts and visa statements and debt. What does he say? What has he said so far in the Gospel of Luke? He, he actually quotes from Isaiah 61, which Krista read earlier. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In chapter 6 of Luke, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In chapter 12, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Could we say that Jesus is anti-wealth and pro-poverty? Could we say that he's anti-rich and pro-poor? If we said those things, we would be simplistic. Because in the Gospel of Luke, where we find ourselves today, it's actually in the middle of a chunk of chapters where Jesus is talking specifically to tax collectors and Pharisees. Guess what? Both rich. What is at issue when Jesus talks about wealth is that it is an issue of the heart and how dangerous wealth can be. Jesus is pro-heart. There is plenty of room in his kingdom for all sorts of portfolios or lack thereof, but only room for one type of heart. See, wealth is not so much about how much you have, but about how much wealth has you and me. Let me repeat that. Wealth is not so much about how much you have or I have, but about how much wealth has us. And that's where things get sticky, because Jesus is about to say another radical thing. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and money. You will love one or the other and hate the one that you don't love. We all know others who, whether rich or poor, or in between, love their wealth. Even if they don't have it, they're fiending for it. Right? And actually, isn't that true of us? As well, We know ourselves too well that, that that thing that's happening in our heart where we see greed, we see want, we see worry, we see despair, all these things connected to love, maybe the, fing- the love of money, maybe the fingers on money that is grasping at our hearts. So we know ourselves, but at the same time we don't because our hearts are hard to figure out when money, wealth, and possessions are truly part of creation. They're truly tools in the kingdom. And they're so near and dear to our hearts, how do we discern who we love? God or money? I'm going to repeat this phrase a few times throughout the sermon. We need help. We need help. Here's a key question. How can we tell who we truly serve and love, God or money? Here's the answer that Jesus gives us from Luke 16. 
how we use what we have, aka wealth, how we use our wealth, how we use what we have is an indicator of who our hearts serve and love, dash, and where our hearts are going. So Holy Spirit of Christ, we ask that you would help us this morning. Jesus, that you who are present here among us would speak to our hearts that desperately need to hear from our King. Yes, Lord, if it be that my words fall off the the podium, please, may you be exalted, Jesus. Please speak to us and give us ears to listen. Amen. So again, I'll repeat that question and answer. How can we tell who we truly serve and love, God or money? How we use what we have is an indicator of who our hearts serve and love, dash, and where our hearts are going. To that end, Jesus tells two parables to two distinct groups of people in this chapter to get his point across. These are two kingdom stories of reversal of fortune. You know what a reversal of fortune is, right? You're reading a story and you think it's going one way, and all of a sudden, it turns back the other. But in the reality is oftentimes those stories involve money like they do here. It is truly a reversal of fortune. Who is group one? Disciples. Now I would say to you right now, when you hear the word disciples, you might think the twelve. The thing is, when Luke brings up disciples in his writings, he's usually not just speaking about those twelve guys. How do we conclude that? Because earlier on in Luke, he actually makes a distinction between the, between the disciples and the twelve apostles. Okay? Those who were closest with him. So here, he's speaking to the disciples. How can we find out a little bit more of who these disciples are? Well, as Jake preached last week from Luke 15, he began in Luke 15, 1, Just hear this. Luke writes, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So who is the crowd that is closest to him? Tax collectors and sinners right now. These are the disciples who Jesus is speaking to. If you remember from last week's sermon, the parable of the two lost sons, These disciples, these tax collectors and sinners, they are the young sons. They had squandered their true wealth, which was a heart for their father and a heart for the family. When they went away with all daddy's wealth and wasted it, they finally came to their senses in that foreign land. Yes, I'm speaking in the plural, even though the parable was in the singular, because It's meant to talk about a group of people. They were humble to return. They came to their senses. They came back and they repented as servants, but then were surprised to be called what? Sons. Assumed they should be servants, cast themselves at the mercy of the Father, and then surprised to be called sons. But the thing is, if that was like their salvation story, their Psalm 107 story, the reality is salvation doesn't happen in a vacuum because then discipleship moves forward and it affects a real person with a real past who has, by being saved, by crying out, God, I need you, they have considered a real cost and found Christ to be worth the cost. So these tax collectors are coming to Christ. They have squandered what they had been given. The fact that they were Israelites. What belonged to them? The promises and the covenants. All of the Old Testament. Yet as Jake expertly showed us last week, they were traitors to their own people. And in effect, they were outcasts from the religious system. They couldn't go to temple. They'd squandered what they had been given. 
true riches of relationship, an opportunity for faith in the Father. Having squandered that, now they are hearing from Christ. They have come to faith in Him. He is receiving them. And Jesus is saying, now this is how you walk forward as disciples. Dying to the greed that once consumed you. Listen to this parable of a squandering servant in some serious trouble. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man, this manager, was wasting the master's possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Ah, I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, this manager said to the first debtor, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. All right, so just so you know, that hundred measures of oil would be about equivalent to three years of pay for an average worker in Israel. Just cut in half. Take, it a, take a year and a half off your bill. Then he said to another debtor, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Huh. For the sons of light, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What's going on here? What is the reversal of fortune? Well, this servant is caught in his dishonesty. Shrewdly, this servant uses the means at his disposal. He still had access to the accounts and to the debtors, and the time he has, he was not axed immediately, to prepare for the reality of the time that was sure to come, his own unemployment. And then he leaves himself at the mercy of the master whom he has wronged. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying to these tax collectors, to these sinners, to these young sons, you used to be squanderers. And now you've been shown mercy. The Father has welcomed you into his kingdom. Now you are sons of light. So use what you have and the time that you have it, because it will fail, according to verse 9, unrighteous wealth, so when it fails... It will fail, so use it for eternity's sake. You used to serve money. You can't anymore if you're truly my disciple. Your heart belongs to the Father now. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth... Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you're familiar with 
kind of this idea of a larger group of disciples throughout the Gospels. You'll remember perhaps in John chapter 6, where there's a similar large group, and Jesus starts saying some radical things about eating his body and drinking his blood. And people are like, that doesn't sound like a guy we should be following. And they turn around and they walk away. Jesus does not assume that everyone who is following him actually has a heart that loves him. So he's saying here, your first step of discipleship, tax collectors, is to deal with what you've been loving. You cannot love both God and money. So the question would be, how can tax collectors know that their hearts are now serving God over money? If they, if they desire to be true disciples, not false disciples, if they say, yes, I believe that I am a son of light and that Christ has brought the kingdom, how do I know? Well, they know by who they now serve. They know that in the kingdom, they have continued to be given wealth to manage. The stuff of life. The master has given this to them, and now they need to have a new perspective about it. Before it was about using it for their kingdoms, now it is for his kingdom. They've also seen that they, they need to see that they have now changed who they love. First of all, him. The master, before he just used to be the master, now he is called father. They're no longer just servants. They are now sons to the father and friends to Christ. Who they now love is they love him and they love his people who will be with them in eternity. What are they called? Friends. Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. For a minute, would the Holy Spirit just cast our eyes upon eternity? And the reality that who we are is not just who we are for this amount of time. All of those who are saved into the body of Christ, born again, will be friends for eternity. Let that sink in a minute. As C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, we have never met just a mere mortal. The brother or the sister sitting here, the brother and the sister that had to leave Edgewater a couple of years ago because they were moving somewhere else. If the Lord takes the Pinaltos to Texas, these are not friendships that end. These are investments in friendships that will last for eternity where we will get to know one another as old friends, continuing to see the grace of God flow through us as we worship Christ and truly live in a new heaven and a new earth that has eternal dwelling. Can I get an amen? amen. There is a place where we will be eternal friends. So these tax collectors, brothers, used to make friends with one another because you were doing your business deals. Now, use that unrighteous wealth that you still have for kingdom purposes. Generously serve others. Bless other people so that when you're there, it's just a whole hospitality party. Coming and going between houses, everybody's just worshiping Jesus and truly loving one another forever which takes me to where you are going now, these tax collectors. Where were you going? You were going on your own direction, and now you're headed towards eternal dwellings. And you have your wealth to send ahead of you. You might say, this is self-interested. Oh yeah, it's self-interested, but it's not self-promoting. It's self-interested in a way that it's not self-interested if there's a shooting, that you run away from the shooting. It's self-interested in the fact that parents love their kids because they want to see their kids flourish. Is there self-interest there? Sure it is, but it's 
wise self-interest. These tax collectors, Jesus is saying, he's saying, be self-interested. The best kind of self-interested is to be God-interested. To take what his word says as true and obey it. To say, yes, I am part of the kingdom of Christ. God, take every single part of me, including my wealth. I'll send it ahead because I know I will be there one day. I will generously bless others now because this is not my home. And soon we'll spend eternity together, friends. Remember, discipleship doesn't happen in a vacuum. It involves real costs, real decisions, real actions, real consideration of does money own our hearts? To be a disciple means to humbly cry, I need God. I need the Lord's help. So you may say, well, what does this look like maybe a little bit more specifically? You can just keep your hand there, but consider this. In Luke 12, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus says this to his little flock, those who were close to him, probably more specifically to his 12, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure Smiling father? Yes. Smiling father. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief, no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus specifically says, listen, this is not your home anymore. And the money you have can be sent ahead. How is it sent ahead? We'll provide yourselves with money bags. They don't grow old. By selling possessions and giving to the needy. Generously giving, 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 giving. You may be truly poor here this morning. I want to acknowledge that. You may be truly feeling the pinch. Listen, the Father has given you other disciples to help you. You may be truly wealthy this morning. He's given you other disciples to humbly help. Randy Alcorn says this in his great little book, The Treasure Principle, my heart always goes where I put God's money. So do you want your heart to burn for the Father, to love Him above money? Then send your money into God's purposes. Want to keep money in the right place? Generously give it to God and love others. This is discipleship for hearts that easily love money, which is all of us. Jesus says your wealth needs to be discipled, disciplined. Some of us may be stuck in kind of a spiritual malaise, a rut. And maybe you're saying, I just got to like sing my way out of it or pray my way out of it or read the word my way out of it. You're trying, trying, trying to get yourself out of it. I would ask you this. Maybe the first order of things is to take your wallet, your money, your heart, and bring it to the cross. Repent of your false love. And again, that can happen whether you're materially poor or rich. Repent of your false love for money and trust Christ. It was the first point of discipleship Jesus had for the tax collectors. Why wouldn't it be for us? Listen, if, if you're simply keeping your wealth to yourself, if you're simply keeping your wealth to yourself and there's no kingdoming in it, you're flirting with loving money over God. In fact, you're probably already there. If you say you love Christ, 
but you're not knowing others within the body well enough to know if they are truly in need. And then if you do find out needs, you're saying, well, sure, I love the body, but you haven't actually helped anyone in that sense then you're in danger of doing what John warns against in 1 John 3, loving only with word and talk, but not deed and truth. That needs to sit on us. But at the same time, I want to say I'm so thankful for you. You are a generous church. You have the gospel transforming your hearts. You, as a group, love God over money. Just in this last week, someone donated frequent flyer miles for the benefit of someone else within this church. And I know that you might like, well, frequent flyer miles, like, that's just, that's not actual. You're not, it might not be dollars and cents, but it is wealth. And that person that gave them, the next time they go to make a flight, they're going to have to pay some dollars and cents. I visited Doris, Nat and I did the other day, and she was so thankful for the time that is spent by her family and also by her church family here in calling her and sending her notes, visiting her when able. She's thankful for the the wealth of time that the body loves her with. This is loving. Even when you don't have a whole lot of dollars and cents to rub together, you have wealth to use for the kingdom. cannot serve God in money. So use your money to serve God, and then that keeps it in the right place. But there's another group that Jesus has to talk to here. These are the Pharisees. And he's going to call them straight out lovers of money. Verse 14. The Pharisees who were lover of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. See, these Pharisees coming out of the parable of the two sons... These are the older sons. They had also squandered the true wealth of a heart for their father and the family of God. And they had even kept up holy appearances. But their hearts belonged to another lover, their wealth. Thus, they never had need to return or repent like the young sons did. They never needed to say, I need the Lord's help. Because they... They got it covered. They loved their wealth on earth, but we will see what they receive after death in the parable that's to come. But first, I want to look at their interaction with Jesus here a little bit before we get into the parable. Consider this. They loved their their money so much that when Jesus started to press on their money and how they viewed their wealth, what was their first reaction? Ridicule. Defensiveness. Because, see, here's the thing. They use their money to justify themselves. They use their money to keep up appearances. They use their money to look righteous. But God knows their heart, as Jesus just did. You see that? Jesus as God. He knew their hearts. He called them out precisely. Their exaltation of money is actually an exaltation of themselves. This is self-love self-promotion, all about them. Money is actually just the tool to their self-promoting ends. See, love for money equals hard hearts. God knew their hearts. Which equals disregard for God, ridiculing Him. Also, our disregard for His Word and His ways. Where do we see that? Verse 16. Jesus says, the law and the prophets... They were until John. These guys grew up reading the Old Testament. They grew up hearing 
about the dangers of money and the need for the year of Jubilee, the, the need to care for the poor and the widow, the need to care for the Levites because they didn't have any land of their own. The Lord was their portion. The Old Testament is replete with instructions to the Jews to say, care for the poor and don't trust in your wealth. Yet they had disregarded the law, the prophets, and then they had disregarded John, as we saw earlier in the book of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke. John is the one that's saying, repent, repent of your love for money. And then Jesus gets very personal. Look at verse 18. We haven't read it yet. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What I, what I don't want you to assume is that this is all that is said about divorce in the Bible. What I do want you to see is that Jesus is making a close connection between our love for money and marital faithfulness. When you love money, marriage gets messy. See, marriage is a covenant before God to love and cherish one another. However, when money gets in bed with you, you end up breaking your covenant with God and with your spouse. That breaking of covenant can quickly follow. These men here are squandering money and they are squandering their marriages. When they asked Jesus about why Moses said divorce is allowed, he said um, it was allowed because your hearts are hard. That's not a justifying answer. That is a condemning answer. Your hearts are hard. That is why you are trending towards divorce. And he's saying this might very well be a key reason. You love money more than God. And so your spouse, your marriage is feeling the strain. Lest we distance ourselves too quickly... Let me read from Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, it says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He had just said divorce would lead to adultery, correct? Listen to the very next verse. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with who you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a husband speaking to his bride. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Though the money might get tight, though the love might seem to wane, I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. So in your marriage, do not leave. Do not forsake. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. And keep your life free from the love of money. I will provide what you need, and I have provided who you need. Be faithful in both. Because as we all know, especially if you're married, both marriage and finances test us. Both marriage and finances test us. You put finances inside of marriage and you double the testing, exponential testing. To which Jesus says, if your heart is mine, if you are a son of light, you will take that testing as ways to throw yourself upon Christ. Excuse me. Throw yourself upon Christ. To trust him. To cry out, Lord, help. I need you. Money and sex can both easily become about self 
exaltation. This is what our flesh wants. Both things are like, give me, give me, give me. Instead, let them both be vessels of self-demotion and generous love to others. Trusting in the Lord with many chances to say, Lord, I need you. So when Jesus says this, he has just said it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. These Pharisees are kind of like, they're trying to skate around the idea that their hearts might love money over God. But Jesus says, listen, your divorce rate, Pharisees, which was high, it shows that you disregard the commandments. Your divorce is actually adulterous. Commandment seven, guess what commandment six was? Is, do not steal. But Lord, I need you is not the help, is not the cry of the Pharisees. So Jesus tells them this parable of a squandering so-called son who is in some serious trouble. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. I taught my kids the other day the word ostentatious. This man is ostentatious. Clothed in the finest of finery, feasting sumptuously every day. Well, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell, just fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died. And he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. Do you remember what we were talking about a few Sundays ago? About the last becoming first? The reality that the host would come and take you from the last seat. Jesus said, sit down at the seat of the least so the host can bring you up to the place of honor. That's exactly what is happening here. The angels bring him from the lowest place to the highest, sitting right next to Abraham. And the rich man sees Lazarus. Verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Key question, how can we tell who we truly serve and love, God or money? It's how we use what we have. That shows who our hearts serve and love, where our hearts are going. If the rich man's heart had served and loved God, he would have served and loved Lazarus. Lazarus wasn't, lest we think like, well, does that mean like we go out and we love every single person that seems in need out there? Perhaps. But what it absolutely means is who is the person that is close to you who is in need. And specifically this, Lazarus had gone to Abraham's side. Lazarus belonged to the Father. There was not only a material divide here between the rich man and Lazarus, more importantly, there was a spiritual divide. The rich man could not recognize Lazarus' piety, his rea the reality that he belonged to the Father because the rich man himself did not belong to the Father. So instead, there's a reversal of fortune. The man who was supposedly blessed is eternally damned. The man who was supposedly damned is eternally blessed. My friends, we can't miss the point of verse 12, or verse 25, we either send our wealth ahead or we risk it testifying against us when we're dead. 
We either send our wealth ahead or we risk it testifying against us when we're dead. This is humbling, even stunning, because we are wealthy, materialistic Americans. When we take an honest look at our wants and desires, how many of them are wealth-dependent and ultimately, if we're honest, self-promoting? God knows our hearts. What do our hearts fear? What do they complain about? What do they boast in? Gas prices, sharp cars, food prices, big vacations, budgets or no budgets, bills, retirement, inheritances. Are these the things that consume our minds throughout the week? Are these the things that that come tumbling out of our mouths in our conversations? Or is there a trust in the Father who says, my little flock, I am going to willingly, graciously give you the kingdom so you can be open-handed with all that I've given you. If you, like me, see yourself, your own heart, in this mess, is there any hope? Is there any help? Let's continue to read. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, this is Abraham speaking to the rich man again, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may come across from there to us. This is the spiritual divide. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham's saying, the king has spoken. The Old Testament is full of the king's proclamations, yet they have been deaf to the king for centuries. Let them hear them. To which the rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. To which Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hear this. There is judgment to come. There is an eternity to come for every single person ever made in the image of God. Ever born into the deadness of their own sin. Ever born into their own love of wealth self-satisfaction, self-exaltation. But you need to hear this as we began in the beginning of the sermon. There is a king seated in heaven who continues to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God through his people, through his word. And you are now hearing it. This resurrected eternal king is saying, Come, repent from your own kingdom building and humbly bow before me. You will be welcomed into the kingdom. Your sins will be forgiven. And you will receive true life. The life that you've always been seeking, I have for you. What a merciful bargain to squandering sons and daughters. What a merciful master and father and king and friend that would say, my arms are wide open, just trust me. Call out, God, I need help. I can't figure this stuff out and my money shows it. A lot of the rest of my life shows it. Maybe, maybe, maybe the way that I think about sex and I think about marriage, all the junk that's been in my past all of us can raise our hands and say, yes, amen, me too. Yet the Father says, you're all squanderers. Come into the kingdom. There is help for greedy, money-loving hearts. And it's found in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ, who will soon tell his disciples that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then, just a few verses later, he expertly weaves a camel through the eye of a needle, and his name is Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector. Jesus, who we know by the grace of our God that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that you by your poverty might become rich. See, the thing is, when we try to just like, we just try to get our ledgers out or you get on your Chase app and you check your account, all that sort of stuff, all of your poverty and all of your riches pale in comparison to the riches of Christ and to the poverty of Christ. We're all in the middle. And the extremes of those two extremes are beyond our comprehension. Yet he gave up that for this for us. And he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom of God, forgiveness for squanderers of money and marriages, and welcome for wealthy idolaters and sexual adulterers. See, he knows that because money and wealth is so close to our hearts, we need new hearts. It's not just about us getting forgiven and then just trying to keep it together. Hallelujah. It's not about that. It's about Jesus having said the, the prophets were then, now the kingdom is now. This is a new era. A new era established by the perfect blood of Jesus, our risen King. He promises new hearts. He promises to make us sons and daughters of light. He promises that the kingdom of God is ours. And he says, what I'm doing through you is a new covenant revolution where disciples with new hearts will serve God over money. They will serve God over money and love each other with their wealth because their hearts have truly been changed? Do they still feel the pull, the pinch of money trying to get in there? Yes. And sometimes it does. But for the one who is born again, it will not ultimately conquer your heart. So live in light of who you are and love God over money. At the very end of this parable, I'm sure you probably caught it. The rich man asks, Father Abraham, if someone goes from, to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you get the irony at the end of this story? That the rich man is hearing this. The Pharisees are hearing this. The now spiritually resurrected tax collectors are hearing this. And we are hearing it knowing that Jesus was the Son that was able to cross across the great chasm between the Father and His lost sons in a faraway country. He was able to cross that chasm and He says, I went to death for you so that I could rescue you out of your death and make you alive again. This is a kingdom of resurrection ruled by our resurrection king. I would just like to read you one short quote from a guy named Brad Littlejohn because this is, I think, very helpful in helping us walk forward in terms of how do we walk day to day when the vices of strange economic times influence us. Hear this. For Christians, money is an instrument for doing God's work. No more, no less. The Christian is not blind to the value of money, for it can indeed be a powerful instrument. And we are called to make wise and even shrewd use of the resources God entrusts to each of us. But Christians should always be characterized by a curious detachment when it comes to money. 
In the eyes of the world, we should seem almost unbothered, shockingly unconcerned about what happens to our portfolios from one day to the next. None of this is, suggest, is to suggest that we not be shrewd money managers, only that our money must not own us. While everyone around us is angrily pointing fingers at the politicians or business leaders supposedly responsible for the economic pain, the Christian will refuse to reduce the time of testing to a mere blame game. May it be so for us, brothers and sisters. We're going to go into a time of corporate prayer. Prayer of confession silently of our love for money. If you're seeing right now the way that the hand of money is trying to grasp your heart, silently confess it. And then we will continue on to a prayer of faith because the Lord is our help. He will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that if money is indeed grasping at our hearts or it has our hearts right now, that you would convict us of sin and it would be quick to come to our senses and to repent. God, please show us how the love of money displays itself in our lives. Father, we confess our worries. We confess our boasts. We confess our apprehensions, the, the what-ifs of life that dominate our hearts, perhaps wake us up in the middle of the night sweating, wondering if we have enough for. Oh God, would you make us more and more into a people who trust you and love one another in such a way that your goodness, your provision is graciously showered upon us as a people. We would love one another in deed and in truth. And that it would flow out of this place. Give us opportunities this week, Jesus, to imitate you, who though you were rich became poor for the sakes of those who were poor. Give us opportunities this week to risk wealth, for the sake of someone else, for the sake of your kingdom being seen. Jesus, these are not things that we ask of you to do so that we can earn our righteousness or justify ourselves, but because for all of those who have been born into your family, how could we do anything else? You have given all to us. Jesus, you perfectly loved and served the Father. And where your heart is headed is where it already is. And you are calling more hearts to yourself. I ask you, God, if, if there are hearers of the King's words here this morning or watching online who do not yet have the life of Christ, that you would do what you said you would do, Jesus. Free captives. Forgive sins. Preach the good news of your death and resurrection to spiritually poor hearts that new life would come.
God, help us love you this week. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray.